got that out of my system. I made a film that I really was passionate about and wanted to make and realized that the film I was passionate about and wanted to make was not a studio film. It was still a genre film. It was a weird, stupid movie. And I, you could look at that and go, there are ties to Sharknado to that film. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today I talk with movie producer David Latt, who along with David Ramawi runs The Asylum, an independent movie studio that has churned out hundreds of B-movies over the years, including most famously the campy disaster movie Sharknado and its many sequels, as well as Z Nation, a zombie series currently airing on sci-fi and Netflix. And really, B-movies are kind of the canary in the coal mine of Hollywood. You can learn a lot from watching just how they both mimic and subvert the stories you see in mainstream movies. And B-movie studios are an interesting case study in the way they're forced to constantly change business models as technology and distribution methods change the nature of Hollywood. Now, I've known David Latt and his partners at the Asylum since the mid-1990s, back when Pulp Fiction had just shaken up the world of independent cinema, and many new movies were trying to mimic Quentin Tarantino's style. Movies like The Usual Suspects, The Boondock Saints, The Way of the Gun, and Lottery Fever. I mean, who could forget the iconic Eskimo parable scene at the end of Lottery Fever? What do you mean? You need help. No. There's an Eskimo in Alaska. It's cold there. It's the done for a living, has to hunt to keep warm. It's a hard way of life, but it's something else. Uh, it, it's okay, just, just call an One ambulance. One day, the Eskimo is hunting his kayak for seals, I think, but I, I can't remember exactly. I, I know he's cold. He's tired of being cold, so he decides, he decides he's gonna paddle <laughs> someplace warm. He paddles what, you've never heard of lottery fever? Maybe. Okay, so maybe I'm the one who wrote Lottery Fever, and maybe it never actually got produced, though I tip my cap to Joe Roach and Andy Royer of The Asylum for dramatizing it for us here. I actually know David Lapp because of Lottery Fever. The Asylum considered making it into a movie back in 1995, and we went through several rounds of rewrites before the project stalled, but in a way, that old script and the ambitions it represented has faint echoes of David's own Hollywood tale, since while The Asylum has gone on to write a fairly significant chapter in the history of American B-movies, David Latt never set out to be the next Roger Corman. He set out to be the next Steven Spielberg, and there was a point at which he had to make peace with the fact that his instincts and talents as a filmmaker lay elsewhere. We'll get to that story and many others in the interview itself, for now, please indulge me for a moment while I tell my own Hollywood story. Oh, no, it belongs to you. Run away, don't paddle, just run away before they come. My story is tied into that Pulp Fiction cultural moment from the mid-1990s when tens of thousands of young, mostly men, from across the country suddenly felt inspired to write quirky, talky action movies not because of what Quentin Tarantino was doing on screen, but because his success story was tied into having been an obsessive VHS video store employee who skipped film school and just started to make movies for himself. If Quentin could do it, we reasoned, so could we. And so we tried. 
Now, around this same time, independent filmmaker Hal Hartley expressed astonishment that so many young screenwriters with zero experience in the criminal underworld were writing movies about gangsters, saying they should be writing movies about sitting on their couches watching gangster films. Clearly, Hal Hartley had a point. Were I to pitch a Netflix TV series set in the 1990s today, that's exactly what I'd have my young male characters doing. Of course, I didn't have that kind of self-awareness in 1995, and Lottery Fever, which revolved around a pair of eccentric deadbeats who steal a winning lottery ticket, was very much written in the mold of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Now, needless to say, my script employed all the tropes of what New Yorker writer Tom Schoen recently pegged to Tarantino films, including bickering hitmen, wildcard sociopaths, and hyper-articulate drug dealers arguing about pop culture. My hitman was an ex-con named Phineas who planned to assassinate the mayor of Los Angeles before getting out of the crime business altogether. In my mind, I saw him being played by Lawrence Fishburne. On the page, he was a blend of Jules from Pulp Fiction and Kyle Reese from The Terminator. You can also see the influence of movies like River's Edge and Full Metal Jacket and fiction like Dennis Johnson's short story collection, Jesus' Son. And if it seems like I don't have much to say right now about what actually motivated my Phineas character, it's because character development wasn't really my strong suit back then. Phineas did have one great scene, which was a brutal five-way shootout that took place inside of a car in the desert in a setting that in some ways presaged the desert massacre scene that Josh Brolin stumbled upon in No Country for Old Men. But for the most part, Phineas was an amalgamation of various cool action movie tropes thrown together in one stoic tough guy persona, a career criminal as imagined by a young guy who knew very little about criminal life or even law enforcement procedure. Far more interesting, especially in retrospect, are Zeppelin and Hans, the two characters who incite the plot by stealing a winning lottery ticket. Zeppelin, that's spelled L-Y-N-N like a girl's name, was this super tough punk rock riot girl, and Hans was an adopted Asian American guy who was trying to break into the acting business on his own terms. Now compared to Phineas, these are pretty original characters, yet while they actually tweak the cliches that many young feminist women and Asian American men are saddled with in Hollywood movies, I still threw them into the generic stakes of an offbeat action movie, and when Zeppelin walks away with a bag full of money at the end of the script, it's kind of hard to guess what she'll actually do with it because we still really don't know her that well. So really, if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably take out the gangster tropes and focus on Zeppelin and Hans, since it feels like they were actual people with complicated lives that were never fully explored. I'm tempted to post a PDF version of Lottery Fever in the show notes, but like many people's early career writing, it's probably best left in a storage box. Perhaps one day I'll write an essay about the experience since it really was an interesting time to be trying and failing to make it in Hollywood. Now, more than two decades later, I have a very satisfying career as a travel writer and journalist, and the film company I was pitching to back then, The Asylum, has become famous for, among other things, making a series of movies about tornadoes full of sharks, as well as making mockbusters, which are movies that tie into the release of bigger Hollywood blockbusters, so, for instance, when Paramount releases Transformers, the Asylum will release a giant robot movie called Transmorphers. And when New Line Cinema releases Snakes on a Plane, the Asylum will release Snakes on a Train, and so on. So here, interviewed in the Z Nation Writer's Room in Glendale, California, is Asylum founder David Latt, taking us inside the sausage factory of B-movie filmmaking. 
So we were talking about uh, Z Nation yeah. uh, and Divadim therein. <laughs> now we're on the record, so forget it. I never, you okay. never heard anything. <laughs> right, right. How have what? you been, by the way? Good. It's good. Been years. It has been. I was. We talked ten years ago. Yeah. And you and were at that, that other scathing piece this, that, that destroyed our right. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to think you have it in a frame someplace. Yeah, I threw it away. Just, Actually, I, I got two two pieces out of that because um, I did a longer piece for the Believer, which I actually really? went back. Yeah, because the fact checkers called you. You've probably forgotten about it already. But I'll um, forget about this after twenty minutes. Right, yeah. right. Unless it creates another scandal. Um, but actually, we can, I can use that to just segue into the, the interview itself, because I met you um, for the first time in 1995, and I was looking at, the, at the, um, the history of the asylum, and it starts in like 97 or 99, but I think you guys were calling yourselves the asylum in 95, and you had made a movie called Sorority House Party, and then I had written a script that I'd passed to you through Josh Seat, who was like interning for you. And it was in the post-Pulp Fiction feeding frenzy where every like 23-year-old white guy was required to write a ripoff of Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. Mine was called Vigilante Citizens, and, I, and you guys kind of liked it and wanted some changes because obviously I didn't know what I was doing. I rewrote it as Lottery Fever, and then it just sort of fizzled out from there. So I don't even know if you remember that. I don't even know. I don't remember being here is really the, uh, the problem. Uh, the, um, so... Yeah, I do remember uh, bits and pieces of, of that story that you're making up completely, obviously. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and, and just to kind of go back a little bit, uh, we were calling ourselves The Asylum, although that was a transition phase because my partner had Icon Entertainment. Icon, we were under that banner for a bit. But yeah, 95, because that's, that's my whole thing is, is, is that uh, I'm like, we're more than 20 years old this year. And... The third partner who came in about 10 years ago was like, no, according to the corporation, the article of the corporation, you were here in 90, you know, we, we established ourselves in 97. I'm like, yeah, but we were a business before 97. So, well, officially, we're 20 years old. I'm like, well, unofficially, we're at least 23. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's. Uh, when did you make that first movie? The So, Sorority House Party was made in 92. Okay. Under the umbrella of the asylum or? No, that was name? Icon. Okay. No, that, was, that was definitely my partner, mm -hmm. um, Icon. And that's, uh, that was my first film that I directed. That was um, a film I met my wife on. And we are currently married, so I know the date very well. Uh -huh. um, and uh, I don't know our, our anniversary, but I know that date very well. Um, and, uh, yeah. She was a staple of those early Asylum movies, right? Because the movie that I was trying to, the script I was trying to write, the slot that I was trying to write for became mm -hmm. Killers, I think. Yes. Um, and I'm pretty sure your wife was in that movie. It's true, she was, although uh, it wasn't a slam dunk. She had to audition with hundreds of other girls, and, and that actually caused kind of a big rip because it's, it's one of those things that look, um, you know, it wasn't my money. It was uh, David's and uh, Ramawi's, and uh, um, it was, uh, you know, he was very insistent that everyone has to audition for the role. There's no nepotism here. This is a lead part. You know, it wasn't a slam dunk. And... Yeah, that was a tough one, you know, just to navigate through and, to, you know, having a relationship, it was a new relationship with my wife and at the time. and uh, So you weren't married yet? I don't, I, I want to say, well, no, we were married. Okay. In, in 95, we were married, uh, but still a new marriage. And you just, you know, I think she wanted to make sure that I was always fighting for her and, and always going to put her first, which is great. But she didn't want things handed to her, so she was willing to 
audition. And at the end of the day, the decision was made by Ramawi, not me, um, whether she could be in it or not. I mean, she's a strong actress. I mean, there's really, for me, it was a no-brainer, but I was directing it, and uh, but it, it, it definitely caused some drama. Uh, but at the end of the day, she clearly was the best actress uh, for the role. Interesting. Well, that it feels like there's three phases to the asylum, and this could be perceived by the fact that I have sort of come back. The, the asylum has come into my radar at three different phases. But and now it's the end phase. Is that it? We're over. <laughs> this is it. Well, it, it, oh, it could God. be. There's some. There's some. I think the Hunger Games did a four uh, film a, a trilogy. But I know that. I knew that there was this company that needed scripts in '95, and I wanted to be the next Tarantino, at least in the writer sense. And then suddenly. I saw this company making transmorphers and and uh, you know H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds in the mid two thousands. Like, wait a second, I know those guys. And then Sharknado blew up um, about three or four years ago. Was it twenty twelve? Thirteen. Twenty thirteen. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I know those guys. And, and so um, it feels like that the, the company has shifted here and there. And I want to I want to eventually talk about the success of Sharknado, um, which has been fun. And in a way, has sort of deviated from almost the company model from the last time we talked, which was ten years ago. So, how did the asylum start, and what were your ambitions then? Because I got the sense, like when I gave you that script in '95, I was a very self-important 25, 20-whatever year old who didn't know anything. But I got the sense that maybe the asylum was still open to doing something sort of arty noiry in the Tarantino vein. Sure, but I'll say that we're very consistent in how we approach movies and have been from the get-go, which is. It's it's manufactured, um, reverse engineered. So even even from '95, absolutely. Okay. So our buyers or our distributors at the time, because we weren't doing any of that stuff, um, told us pretty much what to make, and so we would go make those films. Even from the very first film, I mean, the very first film, Shorty House Party, you mentioned, uh, Rock and Roll Fantasy, the same same movie. Um, at the time, my partner was working at a place called Radon, which is a video video distributor, and he was selling movies with no stars really cheap production values, but to USA up all night and to major players. And so we built a relationship up with USA. And so when it came time to do his um, <clears throat> uh, first feature film, he called up his contact over at USA and said, hey, look, if we go make a movie with no stars, will you pick it up? And they said, yes. They said, what are the genres that, you will, uh, uh, that you'll pick up? Uh, we'll pick up uh, uh, sexy comedy. We'll pick up a horror. We'll pick up a thriller. You know, it's like, OK, so if we did sexy comedy. What? Um, sex comedies do you want? Well, we want either beach, you know, beach blanket bingo kind of thing, or a sorority house party kind of thing, or you know, and narrow it down. And so I said, okay, well, how much are you going to pay for it? Well, well, we usually pay about thirty thousand um, dollars. Great. So we went off. We made sorority house party. Uh, and how much comedy, did it cost to make thirty thousand dollars? Okay. We sold it for thirty-five okay. um, to USA, and then Twentieth Century Fox International for international. Um, we made enough to make uh, the next movie, and the same thing. We were, you know, my partner, and this is kind of his genius, which is um, reverse engineering these movies, pre-selling the movies, as some would call it, which is asking the distributor what they want, what are the what are the parameters of making it, and go and make that film. So we've never been a company that says, "Hey, look, we have a great script. Let's go make that script." We may have in the beginning tried to do that a little bit and, and told our Buyers, hey, look, we have this great script. Um, do you want it? And they always turn around and go, no, no, but what we really want is a giant shark and a, a tornado, or, you know, it's like, okay, we'll go do that. Um, and so that's kind of how, you know, 
it started and how it continues to be, um, even after all these years. I mean, we've never lost a dime on our films. We've made about 300 of them um, wow. simply because uh, we just adhere to that model. Um, I handle mostly production, so you know I'm tasked to make sure that everything is on budget because if it goes any higher than what I have you know allowed, then we lose money, <laughs> and that's not good. <laughs> and so. So this, how old were you in like 92 when this first movie was 11 made? years old. <laughs> um, well, let's see. You must have been in your 20s. Well, let's see. I graduated college in 88. So, um, yeah, I was in my 20s. Yeah. And what were your ambitions then? Uh, because it almost seems like the business model, and I want to get back to this because I, because it's an interesting success story. Um, but I don't know if, I don't know if, you know, a kid watches movies when they're 16 and thinks I'm going to make movies, you know, that are market driven. I, I could be wrong. So tell me what you, what, 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 what I, were well, your ambitions? I, I, I would say, well, first of all, I was the kid that had a Super 8 camera at the age of seven or eight that always made short films. And my ambitions were to make the big studio films. Never was interested in the B movies, never understood that space. Um, I dated while I was in college. Uh, Larry Cohen's daughter, um, who is uh, Larry Cohen, is is a huge B guy. Made uh, It's Alive, Q, Bone, Secret Files, JFK. I mean, a whole bunch of genre films. And I said, boy, if I if I have a career like his, I'm going to shoot myself because I'm like that. That to me is like he's sold out. He's you know pandering to the lowest denominator. It's just what. As I got older, and I realized what he had done, I like. He's on a pedestal to me, and just like this is, you know, in the same vein as Roger Corman and, and Lloyd Kaufman and Larry Cohen and all these guys, are just like ah, you know, to have a career like that. But that, I get, I'm getting ahead of myself. I mean, the, but when I was younger, it was all about the studio films. I mean, yeah, I've been teased as I'm a Spiel baby. Um, uh, you know, definitely like Scorsese. You know, all the big, you know, the big guys, Scorsese and and Coppola and Spielberg and. Um, even Jeff Canoe who did Revenge of the Nerds and you know just any anything studio was really very appealing to me and I liked that theatrical that cinema you know experience and um, and never really saw myself in the genre uh, world um, I remember interviewing Henry Hathaway who did uh, uh, them which is a giant ant movie and uh, I interviewed him for college I did a college paper and he was talking to me as though I'm a huge fan of his and and I had only seen that movie, but he was a huge genre guy. And I should have known a lot more, but I didn't because I didn't care about that, you know, field. Um, so, you know, that, you know, you know, interest in doing the studio films, but then my other interest in being a, this film junkie of loving to make movies and, and wanting to do it kind of just found this mess and uh, this mix of of where I am today and it's been I'm so lucky you know with you know being where I'm at and you know I do have friends that were in the studio system that are no longer there because it's it's not only is it tough you know but it's you work so hard for years for one project and then you're done <laughs> you know whereas I'm making two films a, a month and films that I really like and I love the genre space I love the genre space you know uh, and so, and, how did you learn to love that? I mean, there's a there's a, a David Latt who is sort of dreaming of of being George Lucas or, yeah, yeah. or making the, <laughs> the new Revenge of the Nerds, and then there is 
um, you know, 90s David Ladd, who's suddenly making these these uh, genre beach blanket bingo sorority house parties, right. and then there's David Ladd in the 2010s, who's made Sharknado. So did you learn to wow. love it? I mean, how did that arc? Because I think this is something that's a little bit universal, is that people dream of one thing, and then they end up right. doing and even loving something that they hadn't expected to do. So how did that, how did you make, come to terms with this and, and learn to love what that you do? is a question I've been waiting to hear from somebody, so thank you for asking. Because um, it's, it's a, it's a, for me, it's very, there's a transformative uh, moment in my life that, uh, that made that happen, and and I don't talk about, but it's, um, but now I will, because uh, you asked the question. So there you go. Um, which is, uh, I had just done Killers 2, and I'm with my wife going, wow, you know, I'm going to be doing Killers, you know, 40 by the time I'm 40, and this is my life now. I mean, I see this is where my life is going, and I'm like, this is not where I want to be. And Killers 2 was like an action movie? Is yeah. that how you would characterize but, it? Yeah, but it was still in the genre, low budget, you know, mm -hmm. making these films for $100,000 or, you know, somewhere in that space, and, you know, I still had visions of the $100 million movie and uh, probably as, at that time, $10 million movie. As like a stepping stone. You're still yeah. thinking of, of I'm still thinking coming out of genre but films. The, but the company had already found its footings. Uh, Asylum's already started. You know, it, you know I, I'm definitely more in bed with this idea of creating this company, but I still didn't want to be in this low-budget genre space. My partner, however, who is much smarter than I am, um, you know, saw this, the, the road we were going on was a much better road to be independent and to do what we're going to do and not be beholden to the studios and everything else. So he was clearly on this one path and I was clearly trying to go a different path, um, which wasn't fair to the company, wasn't fair to him. And, and But I didn't want to quit the company. I just wanted to take the company in a different direction um, in the, the studio space. Um, and what I ultimately ended up doing was I was at a film festival. and uh, What year was this? Late 90s maybe? Yeah, late 90s, sorry. That would be uh, late 90s, around 99. Um, uh, and I'm like, I got to make a festival film. That's the, the, the obvious next step. I have some experience with, uh, with movies. I got to make a festival film. But true to form, I can't really go out and make a festival film. I have to make a film that really I respond to, which is real stupid comedy and real real bizarre edgy tastes and so I made it so my wife and I basically made an anti-festival film we had just seen a film about necrophilia and we're like you know and it played Sundance and, you know damn it you know they just take films about necrophilia and black and white and you know 20 somethings and onks and I can't stand that kind of crap it's like well let's go make that movie you know that in the anti-festival we'll get the festivals so I went in, I went into making a movie that was going to find a very niche audience called Jane White is Sick and Twisted. And that's actually on my list of things to ask because I remember <laughs> when that came out. So, it, so tell me about this. So, so I made it as a, as a calling card to get me out of the genre space, to make me, as, as I told my investors, I said, look, I said, this isn't going to make anyone money. This is clearly just a festival. Uh, piece. I want to be Hollywood boy toy. I want to get on the critics list. I want to have critical acclaim. I want to feel the rush of going to a festival and feeling like I'm invited rather than I'm just crashing, you know, into the parties and, and whatnot. Very ego driven. 
And, I, and by that point, I had made a few films, so the investor was like, yeah, 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 you've never lost money in a film. You're worried to invest in you. I'm like, ah, don't do it. Don't do it. But, um, but I got investors to, to put up money. I put up our house, you know, maxed out the credit cards. Um, but I believe this was like where I wanted to be. It almost broke up the asylum because my partner was so against me making this film. I mean, it was, you know, shouting matches, kind of really nasty. He considered it a bad business decision. Not just a bad business decision. Uh, me focusing on something else. I should be focusing on the on the business uh, on the asylum. I shouldn't be indulging this. This is a waste of time. It's not going to make any money. This is not where I want to take the company. And just really separate himself. It's like if you make this, you're on your own. I don't want to ever fucking talk. Are we good with that? Like, yeah, we okay. can swear. Okay, I don't want to ever talk about this stuff. Okay, um, and and so I made it outside of the company, and uh, and it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Not only did it like hit top ten lists for that year, it got invited to all these festivals. It, I was the Hollywood boy toy. I did everything, and as it was designed to do, as Romali, my partner, was very clear about, it made no money. Um, did it lose money? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, I mean, but we could, I could say that the asylum never lost money because this was not an asylum movie because it was never endorsed by the asylum, never was, you know, invested in the asylum. I mean, the investors made their money back because we paid them first, um, but I didn't, my wife and I didn't. But it did what we were supposed to do. And as, as a byproduct of all that stuff is what I'm saying is that it, it got that out of my system. I made a film that I really was passionate about and wanted to make and realized that the film I was passionate about and wanted to make was not a studio film. It was still a genre film. It was a weird, stupid movie. And I, you could look at that and go, there are ties to Sharknado to that film. You know, how it was... Well, wasn't it a satire, like a Jerry Springer-ish type? It was a satire. Um, it's a parody. It was uh, one for the books. I mean, it was just, you can get a lot of what it is out of it. But it was definitely, yes, a satire about, it was a state of affairs of how television culture and, and pop, uh, pop culture and, and all that stuff. And how does Sharknado trace back to... Jane White. I think there's a lot of stupid humor in both, and okay. I think um, you know we did a lot of stunt casting in uh, Jane White. I was very insistent on every cameo be a television icon, um, and uh, you know, and we kind of carried that kind of casting um, into Sharknado. Um, you could definitely see ties uh, to it, but at the end of the day, when I was done with that movie, I was cleared and you know of of my desire to ever jumping into the studio space i was done and i went back into the genre space feeling feeling energetic and excited and passionate and uh you know really owning what what that was i think had i not done jane um i would be very bitter <laughs> right now you know um, but I got that out of my system, and it was wonderful. I mean, it was really cathartic. So you preempted regret by making <laughs> the film that you thought you wanted to make, and then... I realized it was the same movie that I was making. Okay. And, and, um, and just having fun being independent, you know? Maybe that was really more of where I was at in my headspace, is that um, feeling autonomous and independent um, with how I approach things. and And... You know, I, I, I think I felt before that I was really beholden to what the company was looking for, what our buyers were looking for, what Romano was looking for, and this was just truly just on my own. Failed <laughs> on my own, but, you know. What's interesting that um, 
Like if you if you if like Tim Burton was to make a movie about the asylum, this is like one of the plot points. There's the dating of the of the daughter of the B movie guy in college. <laughs> there's the there's the making the dream indie movie and realizing that it's that it's sort of that, but it's not that much different than the than the the stuff that you're already making under the genre umbrella. I'm curious. You use the word independent, and I think when we like the standard hipster perception of independent cinema are these. Um, you know, art film independence. Mm -hmm. So, just naive question: What does independent mean to you? How does how is independent filmmaking for the asylum different from independent filmmaking as it's understood in sort of the Sundance world? Apart from content itself. Yeah, I, you know, it's definitely an approach, and and I, I think we're much more independent than the studio would be. Um, but there's degrees, and and you know, the the, the person that is making. The film in their garage, you know, using mom and dad's money and some dentist's money, feels a lot more independent than we are, um, you know, because they're like, ah, oh, I'm going to make this film. There, I'm going to explore life and 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 do whatever. But what they're going to discover is that that independent comes at a cost at, um, you know, uh, how it's distributed and produced and and uh, get out there in the world and discover that maybe that independence isn't such a good thing because it's not going to get an audience. You know, that you need to find an audience. Um, our independence is, and it's probably less so now than it was maybe 10 years ago because there's too many banks involved at this point because we're too freaking big in a lot of ways, um, is, you know, yes, we're told from a buyer they want, um, you know, a Western with giant snakes or whatever, but we still get to make whatever we want. That content still is 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 our own and we get to do what we want to do in there and still you know try and get the most entertaining exciting film that we can out of that you know uh that suggestion of how we you know what films to make so we still have a lot of autonomy I, you know that kind of gets, as we go into our next phase you know come back here in 10 years well i'll be greeting you at walmart but um you know if that's not the case then it's you know as, as we get more beholden to the Amazons and the Netflix and uh, uh, the Hulus and the YouTubes and all that stuff, they're going to have a lot more demands on how we produce content. And I see how that would, you know, all of a sudden the asylum, which was independent, you would, you would say independence in the way that Lionsgate's independent or, you know, um, you know any of them are independent. Meaning you would be... Um dependent so to speak on these streaming services for distribution no dependent on how the content is produced okay you know i mean as i mean we, we've had a lot of autonomy you know just enjoying not being um so uh in lockstep with um uh, the studio so like sci-fi you know sci-fi is been a phenomenal partner for a couple decades they let us kind of go how we want to go i mean they're still involved. It's not like you know they. We talk once a year. We probably talk five times a, you know a week. Um, but you know, hearing it from how other places produce content for sci-fi or for the other channels, um, you know, they have to prove you know how the shoes are tied and you know how you know the the look here and see everything. It's like we don't have that, but we have these long-term relationships. As we get into newer relationships with the Netflix and the and the YouTubes and everything else. 
I feel like that's going to, until we prove ourselves, I guess, um, that we're going to be a lot more controlled by the content of what we do. Well, I'm curious about this because it sort of leads into the phase two asylum, which was the last time I visited you. So I guess we're in phase um, three at this point. Yeah. Well, we are because last time I, I left the, the asylum, which was in West Hollywood then, with a stack of DVDs. Uh, and sort of the mock DVDs, bus. DVDs, what are those? Well, well that's it. It's, it's cultural history. You have to go to the Smithsonian to uh, see them now. Um, and that was really the mockbuster um, phase, or the tie-ins. I think you were calling them back then, the tie-in films. Mockbusters. Yeah. Um, well, the New York Post coined it, so you, they did. You, you roll with the culture. But that was, correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like part of that was having a physical DVD for uh, Transmorphers in the store when Transformers was on the screen, and that was part of that model. But now that you don't have DVDs on the shelf, how does that, are you going to, go out of the Mockbuster business, or is there a way to continue to... Um... Well, the Mockbuster business is, you know, when we do a Mockbuster, and when we draft from the, the studio's uh, catalog... And actually, I should probably explain for our audience, the Mockbuster is, is basically, a, it's a tie-in movie. When a big blockbuster comes out, the Asylum makes a, a much smaller movie with a similar name, um, yeah, it's a marketing tool more than anything else. The right. content's a little bit different. Obviously, we don't work off the same scripts and stuff. Right. Um, but those are few and far between and have been for a while. Um, it, these days? These days. Okay. But we still do them on occasion. Um, they just get the most noise, you know, because they're the, no one cares about the, the other films. They care about the mockbusters. It's, it's, it's more of a scandalous story. Um, but it's... The whole... Matrix, the whole model is um, challenging, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's morphing into something that we don't understand. The mockbuster uh, model. The business model. The business the model. The whole thing. Because, you know, you're drafting off of studio films, but studios aren't making that many more movies, and then when they're released, it's really, unless it's a Marvel film, they're not going to really break out, you know, with, with some exceptions. Um, so what are you mockbusting? A film that's going to make $20 million, $30 million is not necessarily worth it. I mean, it's a tough call. So the, you know, the mockbuster model is really for international. that They want to have something, but even then they just, they're not even that excited about it anymore. Um, uh, and there's no DVDs to kind of um, parrot what the release is because no one's releasing DVDs, Blu-rays or any of that stuff. So... Um, the and the uh, video on demand channels don't want the mockbusters, uh, which is bizarre to me because they're the only ones that that never cost them any money. If you have a, or a subscription video on demand, so if you have a subscription and you see that Transmorphers is not Transformers, well, you just go to the next, you know, it's like, all right, you watch 30 seconds of it and you move over to Transformers, but it doesn't for some reason they're a lot more sensitive than the DVD market was, and the DVD market. We never heard of any huge problems with returns. In fact, our returns were less than the studio returns, you know, on stuff. So hmm. it was never a drama there, but it seems to be a drama in the uh, uh, SVOD market. When I was, uh, again, 10 years ago when I was sort of covering, my New York Times Magazine article was really about the mockbuster phenomenon. The, the, the asylum was doing a lot, but that was sort of the, the fun, quirky thing that was being covered. There was also, it felt like in the, in the social media world, as it existed in 2007, a lot of haters. And now, like, Sharknado has created, all of a sudden, the asylum is beloved, in a sense. <laughs> um, and so, I, I mean, are there, are there still haters? And what was, how did you navigate that um, back in the day when there was just all this vitriol? Uh, 
We would get our daily death threats and kind of laugh at those. Death threats? Oh, sure. All the time. Um, we still get them on occasion. Give, like, um, give me an example. What does that mean? I, we, I saw whatever movie. You guys suck. I hope you die. Okay. You know, um, that's kind of more on the lighter side and the more, you know, dramatic side. It's like, I'm going to fucking come over there and kill you all, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, which is never good. Uh, it, it Some of them are scary, but it hasn't been for a while. I mean... Uh, Sharknado has definitely made us a little more mainstream um, in that regards, and and beloved in, in a lot of ways because people are they find joy in it and and they look forward to the next installment and 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 so and I think when you give people that kind of happiness for whatever that is um, through that property, then you're forgiven a lot. So it's a it's a weird space to be, you know, because I'm usually hated more than you know appreciated. Um, but I'll take either. It doesn't really matter. I, I, you know, it's, I'm trying to, my three children and one's a teenager in fact, and so I guess not so kid-like, but, um, you know, it's one of those things I try and teach them. It's like, look, you know, cause they get teased or whatever at school and they go through all the stuff that I'm sure everyone's gone through. It's like, you just kind of, you know, just put the, you know, just don't listen to that crap, you know? They get I mean, teased for being the, the children of... No, 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 just in general. Okay. Just, you know, if they can't do sports or they can't do, you know, whatever, right. just being kids and, um, you know, the bullies in, in, in school. But you just sure. kind of like, I'm like, I go through every day, I, I put a film out and, you know, the people don't like my movies and they call me names and whatnot. And just, who cares about those guys? Just don't, don't worry about that. You know, just, just go forward, you know, be, you know have the strength in your own convictions and, and, and enjoy what you're doing and you're going to be fine. You know, I, I did call it out early on. Um, there was, I got an email and I don't usually respond to emails, but this one was so mean. And it was, um, you know, it's like, I'm going to basically, I'm, you know, you're, I mean, it, it's the basic of you're a lousy filmmaker and I'm, I can do much better than you. You don't know the first thing about movie making, blah, blah, blah. But it was, it was, I'm going to come over and, you know, basically mess up your, you know, your, uh, your employees. I mean, he named people by name. It was like, you know, this person, so-and-so, because he obviously knew the employees and what they did. And it was a very personal attack. Hmm. And, and, it was personally and what attacking. year was this? Was this is probably like eight years ago. Okay. And, and it, it, so I wrote him back. And I said, look, don't watch our movies. We're good. We don't need your three bucks. It's, it's, it's fine. You'll, you'll live life a lot happier just move on and whatnot, where, where it's, it's all fine. I get an email back from the same address, from the email, and it basically says, look, I'm really, really sorry, but my 14-year-old uh, has my email accounts, and so when you responded, I saw that he you know, was doing that. I am so embarrassed you know, that he would write a letter like that. I mean, I will talk to him. You know, I know, you know he's 14, he thinks he knows everything, but when I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, it's, 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 these are kids. You know, then that's even more reason not to like you know get so hung up on. They're just they're just idiot kids like I was, and you know I could do a better job. And why I didn't you know why I didn't appreciate people like Larry Cohen and and, and other people because I could do a better job. And right. you know I, I wouldn't have told him that he sucked, um, but you know, that certainly had the passion of oh I felt I could do so much better than that. Just give me the money and I could. That's a rubber baby and it's a live you know costume. Who cares you know? But uh, you kind of. It put things in perspective, and I was able to kind of like hopefully give that story to other people, other filmmakers. I'm like, don't read the reviews. Don't read the reviews because there are so many people that 
on the review side of things would just don't will discount what you're doing because it's the asylum. And I can tell you right now, this is the review of every movie that we've ever produced, which is um, the asylum sucks. This is a horrible film. The acting's atrocious. The writing is subpar. There is no redeemable value of this movie to be watched at all. Except I did like this one particular scene, and this was really good, and that was a very funny moment, and this was wonderful, and I thought it was really entertaining this way. But at the end of the day, I'm giving this a one out of ten stars because it's a silent movie and it sucks. I'm like, that's your review. That's on every every publication. Don't worry about it. I'm telling you what and True to form, that's usually what the... <laughs> so is that how you learn? Because, I mean, this, this, this also feels a little bit universal, too, that, we, that everybody, whatever they, whatever they work in as a profession, are going to come up against low moments and criticism. I mean, how did you learn to inure yourself to that, um, to, to the haters, you know? I, it, I you know, it's... it's I don't think what I do is anything more special than anybody else out there. I just try not to pay attention to the noise. Um, you know, on that, whether you liked it or not, I would love it if you, if you know, if everyone loved it, that'd be great. Uh, if there are valid criticisms, that'd be great. I watch old films of ours we made 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I'm like, oh, okay, I get that. I, I see. Okay. I see why they were saying that. Because at the time, I'm like, no, this, what do you mean that monster looks? It looks great, and that's wonderful. And I'd get, so, oh yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've always been pretty self-deprecating, you know, yeah. um, that you haven't pretended to be, you know, Warner Brothers or something, you know, that you've always admitted that you're, you're uh, making movies for a very specific market. But then uh, it, just, it just seemed like the atmosphere, the online chatter surrounding the asylum was different 10 years ago when I was writing about it versus the post-Sharknado. It, it's cool now to like us. It was mm. cool to hate us before. Mm. Um, you know, I... Uh, you know, I, it, it's one of those things. It's, it's. I, I, I like either one of those. Um, the indifference is is more unsettling to me when I meet someone and they okay. ask what you do, and, and and I tell them Sharknado, and they oh, okay. Like, you know, because I'll, I'll get some kind of reaction, which is like, oh, uh, you know. <laughs> That's an interesting point that that even you know pre Sharknado, having haters means that people are engaged. You know, even if it's yes. negatively engaged. And indifference is probably worse than having than having vitriol from sure, people. Sure, I'm like the Trump of filmmakers. Well, you interesting. Know, I, I just, I, you know, I, for good or for bad. Again, I will always take the good over the bad because I don't see the reason that you have to hate. But I did. I was at this charity event a couple weeks ago, and these uh, these students, these student leaders, and they're all from um, under, you know, um, uh, privileged, you know, uh, kids, you know, from from downtown, and and just they don't have the access, the opportunity, and this is a an organization, a charity that is phenomenal. It's a, a C5LA, and it's um, uh, and and they basically sponsor these kids and put them into leadership roles. And 100% graduate high school, which is unheard of, and 85% go to college. I mean, you know, and, and pursue their dreams. So I'm talking to to them at this event because they're kind of scattered throughout. And you know, finally, someone asks, "Well, what do you do?" I said, "Tell them." And everyone in this room is big. Okay, that that's not one of the kids. And important Hollywood important people. Important Holly, Hollywood and industry people uh -huh. and, and stuff. And oh, a film and studio, and that's great. Well, what have you done? I said, well, you know, I do a film called, you know, a series called Sharknado. And just, Alvin went, oh, okay. All right, all right, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, son of a bitch. 
And so what do you think that meant? Was it? I think they meant that the guy next door, you know, three elbows down was, you know, runs Paramount, you know, right. and it's like, you know, they're trying to get on Hunger Games 5 and, and not necessarily uh, Sharknado 20. I, <laughs> I well, well, I want to get to the, the success of Sharknado, but one thing I'm curious about, um, the last time we talked, that actual campy movies, uh, Delving into humor 10 years ago was something you couldn't really do because of international market considerations. Right. Whereas Sharknado has become this iconic American franchise because, you know, very much because it embraces camp. So what changed? Well, Sharknado changed. They changed, Sharknado changed the rules. Now, we didn't change the rules. So, you know, the first Sharknado, very serious. You didn't break the fourth wall. You were, you know, you were committed to what was going on, and 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 I will say that that's the core of all the Sharknados. But, um, you know, everyone all of a sudden became a cook in this kitchen, and so because of that, Twitter, because of Twitter, because of because of well, I'm just, I'm talking about the buyers specifically. Okay. So the, so the sci-fi buyers, our international buyers, and they all wanted certain pieces of this, and they all. Wanted so we're talking before the movie was made. No, no, no. This is so during the. The first one, after the first one was made, okay. and the success of the first one, they went, okay, let's you know, let's make a second one. Now, historically for us, sequels don't do well. So, all right, so you do the second one, but because the first one was just such a phenomenon, you know, literally phenomenon in, in, in our genre, in our space, in our industry, I mean, this really broke all barriers, and, and so... Um, so we're allowed to do the second one, but the second one, and even the second one has some seriousness to it, but you definitely see the path it was going down of more of zany, crazy out there. And so every single time that we jump back into this into the Sharknado world, we're, okay, let's put the Chrisleys in there, you know, sci-fis, let's, let's put, you know, Real Housewives in there. Let's put, it's like, all right, well, how do you, how do you do that and maintain whatever integrity there is to Sharknado? Um, Integrity and Sharknado, that's a funny juxtaposition. Well, there's probably something in there. Um, I'll say this, how do you be true to the world of Sharknado and not not exploit it to the sense of destroying what that franchise is and also let it grow into the franchise it wants to become? And um, it's a tough mix. So when they throw all these cameos our way and we have to kind of wedge in a story which they wanted oh you know it would be really cool so sci-fi is throwing the cameos your way a lot of a lot of it comes from sci-fi a lot okay. of it comes from now agents and managers going i want my clients in there and, I and sci-fi going yeah we want them you know or we're going we want them it's like you know greg loganis you know probably means nothing to my kids but that's awesome you know tony hawk meant something to uh uh my kids uh, but i don't you know <laughs> um so there's a lot of there's a lot of cooks in this kitchen, and 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 so Sharknado is just becoming wherever it needs to be. And you know, there's right now we're announced we announced on Sharknado Five we're doing a, a musical in Vegas. Interesting. Yeah. So five is is six in the works. Six is is in the discussion phase. Okay. We're a little bit behind the ball on on getting this going or you know the problem is is that the ratings weren't great you know four five five. they've always been like spectacular Uh and five was still going to be their biggest thing um on sci-fi but it wasn't the phenomenon one two three and four were Hmm. So four was peak Sharknado as of now. No, I think two was probably peak. Uh, probably one was probably peak Sharknado. I mean, eh, maybe two. So we're, okay. we're going to say two. I, but I don't really even know the numbers. You know, it, it's 
maybe maybe four does well for sci-fi on an advertising basis. So maybe they would say four is the best, maybe not on the rating side, you know. Um, so five, so, well, so now we're here at number six. I don't have an announcement to make to say that we're going to go into six. I think everyone wants to do six. Um, we just don't know where that is. I know the actors want to do six. I know sci-fi has indicated they want to do six. We, as a company, want to do six. Um, so the energy is there to do it, but I, I don't know. Everyone's in the slow motion mode. You know, I'm, I'm like, we should be on the 10th rewrite at this point and offering Dolph Lundgren, you know, a reprise of the role, you know, whatever. You know, is, let's, let's start making this film. But. Well, let's rewind a bit because I know that you went, I mean, through the whole um, life of the asylum, you've had marketers saying, well, we want to film about um, sorority house parties. We want a film that has submarines and, and giant right. octopi, which seems a little bit absurd to me. So it, I, it sounds like somewhere in, people were sitting in a room and said, sharks and tornadoes, that's what's going to sell. Let's have the asylum do it. I mean, is that sort of how it came about? Was it out of the old business model and this one just happened? It was out of the old business model. Mm -hmm. It wasn't exactly that. It was an AFM, so probably 2012, um, around the same time that we're at right now. Um, and uh, we're having dinner with our sci-fi uh, friends who are no longer working there at this point. Um, things change. Um, and um, they said, what are you working on? And we had, were coming up with some concepts that our international people wanted. One of them was called Shark Storm. We said, okay, it's a, you know, they said, well, tell us about Shark Storm. We said, okay, it's about this uh, the storm that kind of picks up sharks and, and dumps them in Los Angeles, and people have to fight the sharks. And they went, oh my gosh, we have a title that we've wanted to use for years and uh, haven't been able to find the story. And the title's called Sharknado. So look, if, if we give you the Sharknado title, could we use you know you could use your plot, but could we just marry the? So city you had the Sharknado title. No, they they, they did. They did. Okay. Uh, and, and they meaning what? Sci-fi. Sci okay. Sci-fi. So actually, that the Sharknado title actually came from a movie called Leprechaun Four that they did, and the writer of that um, is a guy named Anthony Ferrante. And um, when we came down to looking for a director for Sharknado, which we all said yes, we'll go do. But we're not going to call it Sharknado because um, that's a dumb title. Um, but we said, sure, you know, to, to sci-fi. Um, we wanted, our first choice was a guy named Anthony Ferrante. We went over to him because he had directed us before. He said, hey, we have this property called Sharknado. Do you want it? He's like, wait a minute. I came up with that for Leprechaun. That was my script. What do you, what do you, um, sci-fi didn't want Anthony directing hmm. because he, is, he was known as a horror uh, director, thrillers, that kind of thing. Hmm. And this was definitely action. And, um, and so... Everyone turned it down because no one wanted to do a film called Sharknado. And we're like three weeks out. We still don't have a director. We're like, guys, we've got to, you know, figure this thing out. And we really want to put Anthony. In the meantime, even though we told Anthony, no, he already storyboarded the whole script. He's like trying to lobby for actors. I mean, he's like, Anthony, you don't have the job. You know, Sci-Fi does not want you. <laughs> but he continued as though he had it. And Sci-Fi finally relented and they gave him the opportunity of, of a lifetime, really, to, to do it. And uh, uh, that's how Sharknado kind of came about. So it came about with the old model of, hey, we're making this for other buyers. Do you want in? Sci-fi would only, you know, at the time they were buying maybe one or two originals. And when they do, it's money. You know, it's, it's a lot more money. So we're, we always want to sell the sci-fi. Um, so Did you know, did you have a sense that this was going to be different? Because you made a lot of genre movies in that vein, like um, Giant Squid 
versus mega <laughs> mega sharp versus giant octopus right. was our biggest thing there. And and I really and, and so that, did you have this sense that this is going to be big, or did you just wake up one morning it was trending on Twitter and it's like, oh my god? Well, I'm probably the first. Uh, on, on the first line of, of defense on what's out there because, well, first of all, to answer your question, we had no idea what we were doing. Uh, we were, this was just one of many. But I do live tweets. Um, I like to engage, so I do live tweeting with uh, Twitter and all that stuff, so uh, the social media. And, and I'm, so I'm, I'm on Twitter, and I just started on Twitter, and so I didn't really know what I'm doing. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm tweeting in the middle of, of, uh, of Sharknado, I'm like, I'm like, I, there's something wrong with my Twitter. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's just going really, really fast. And I'm like, I, 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 I'm doing so. I, I literally called up our IT from the office. I'm like, I, there's something wrong with Twitter. Uh, you have to reset it or something on your side because it's going way too fast and something's going on. They're like, oh, that's the conversation. I'm like, that's not the conversation. There's something wrong with this. I'm like, you know what? Just screw you. And I hung up and, and, and restarted everything. Still was going really fast. And I'm like, this is... I don't like Twitter. <laughs> I'm, I'm way too old for this. I don't understand what's going on. And then that night, I'm getting emails from people going, "Hey, congratulations! This is great. Are you watching? Did you see the Patton Oswalt just, you know, tweeted?" I'm like, "No, no, I, I had no idea." And and uh, Mia Farrow, she just tweeted. I'm like, "Really? She just really? She tweeted? Let me go look." And I started looking. And so for the next like five hours after Sharknado was done, I'm just watching internet stuff uh, exploding about. People talking about Sharknado, and I'm emailing um, Sci-Fi. I'm like, "Hey, isn't this fun? Isn't this great? Whatever." But that was it. I mean, you know, it's just like, I, I, part of me was like, "This was just how social media worked," um, and I just wasn't aware of it before, prior to it, um, because this was supposed to be the death of original movies at Sci-Fi. This wasn't. This was not supposed to work. They had gone from original movies on Saturday night and said, and and, and the, the new president at the time said, we don't like the originals. We don't want to do the originals. It's, it's not a direction we want the Sci-Fi Channel to be. And we want it to be the channel of Battlestar Galactica, and more smart, you know, Stargate, you know, this kind of stuff. Not, not this crappy B movie, Big Shark stuff. So he. So, but we always were the highest rated for the week. <laughs> So he's like, all right. I'm Is this be before Shark? You know that yes. you're the highest rated. Okay. So yeah, all of our shows, shows always were, were the highest rated. So, uh, so they basically took the Saturday Night Original. They said we're going to put it on Wednesday, and everyone knew that was to kill it. That was to to, to put a nail in the coffin, so he can go see. There's no, there's no more originals. We're fine. You know, let's just move on and, and start just doing. Series. And Sharknado was supposed to be the the. That was the Wednesday. That they were they went, they were going to kill it by putting it on Wednesday. Right. And what was it? A slow Twitter night or something? And people grabbed onto I, it. I don't know, but it 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 obviously didn't work. <laughs> you wonder who the patient zero was. Obviously, there there was probably I, one I influential tweet, and then suddenly it blew up. Who, what's your idea? Well, my my was Mia Farrell said you know she's in bed watching this thing, which we found out later was a fake tweet. Huh. Okay, Patton Oswalt saw that Mio was t was tweeting and started looking into Sharknado and then was like making jokes about Mio watching this stupid movie on sci-fi. Because Patton has all these fans and celebrities, they all were like, what is Patton you know, looking at? Why is he you know, interested in this? So they started tweeting about it. And so all of a sudden, these 
heavy influenced uh, influencers uh, from social media were talking about. Now everyone does it, so it's like it's white noise. No one cares. I don't know if Sharknado could ever be Sharknado at this point, but back then it was like really new. That everyone kind of like dominoed to this whole thing, and so everyone was like tuning into to, to uh, sci-fi to find out what the hell these people were talking hmm. about. Hmm. So I think it was Mia, and I think it was Patton, both of whom have turned us completely down for two, three, four, and five. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you. If oh yeah, they went nothing. They're like, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think they're sorry they even like were you know even associated with it. Uh-huh. It would be our dream to put them in. Um, but uh, but we have to work on them a little bit harder, I guess, <laughs> on the thing. But that's that I think was the catalyst to the whole thing. It's interesting because Patton is sort of sort of has a highbrow audience, relatively speaking, in yes. the comedy world, and he's made fun of B movies before. Like he, you know, he was talking about being a comedian and trying to get scripts made, and there was Deathbed, the de- the the bed that kills people or something. <laughs> and so he was. I think he's he's always sort of had this exasperation towards B movies in general, and so I think. That he just used his existing, uh, you know, vernacular in this world, and he was he was riffing on in real time. But I remember when I, I, I may have come to it the next day. I don't think I discovered it on Twitter, but it's just like suddenly there's these stories about how Sharknado blew up, and then I'm looking. It's like, oh my god, that's that's the asylum. These guys. <laughs> my, my my dad, who was uh, uh, living at a, an assisted living place at the time, um, I saw him like a week later, and he and he goes. Uh, you know what film you should do? I said, I said, well, he goes, it's really, you should, you should do this, the Sharknado thing really blew up. You should do a <laughs> film like that. Like that. <laughs> I got some news for you. <laughs> if only you could be like those Sharknado's people. Yeah, because, you know, he saw that as a big success. And, um, you know, and then, and then the news just kept talking about it and talking about it. And they still talk about it. Five movies later, and we're still being invited to the Today Show. And we're still, like, um, you know, it may not have the impact it had before, but but we're still invited to the parties. It's just it's so bizarre to me. Didn't um, Obama talk about it? Obama like on... talked about it. Um, he uh, mean tweets on Jimmy Kimmel. Okay. I have a producer friend at Jimmy Kimmel, and he called him. He goes, "You gotta watch tonight." And I'm like, "What? What's the what's going on?" He's like, "Obama's just talked about Sharknado." I'm like, "You're kidding." <laughs> That's awesome. So, oh, it's completely awesome. So, um, so how did how did things change after after Sharknado? I mean, it it feels like the business model is the same. I mean, obviously you're capitalizing on this on the popular success of, of Sharknado, but how did that transform the asylum? Well, we got a thank you by doing a uh, TV series for uh, you know sci-fi between Z Nation, uh, and, we're, and we're, it looks like we're sitting in the Z Nation writers' room. Is that right? We are. So there's, can I even, like, Murphy starting to cut? No. Okay. No, no, that's all. Murphy puts on a clown suit. (laughs) There it is. Murphy ties. uh, Although the cutting is episode four, which just uh, uh, aired. Okay, so so the audience knows that Murphy is starting to cut himself. Yes. Okay. They don't know why, so now you can't read Uh, anything past that. Interesting. Well, see, I haven't haven't seen the show, so, uh, so, but it's interesting that I'm sort of seeing the future of uh, Z Nation on the wall of this office in where are we going to It means nothing to you, but uh, to those diehard fans, they're like, I want to take a picture, take a picture. (laughs) No. Right? No. The smuggle out the secrets of Z Nation. So tell us, actually, that's... We're in an era now where really TV has more cachet than, than movies. Um, and so, so tell me about the, the Z Nation and how that came out of Sharknado and, and uh, is another legitimizer for the, the Asylum. Right, and, and a game changer um, for the Asylum. We, um, uh, you know, we were pitching series to sci-fi for a while up to that point, but um, really not, nothing was holding on. We had um, done a movie called Zombie Apocalypse for them about a year or two earlier, and it was at the time their highest rated. 
And um, we had an inside guy that was no longer working there by the name of Craig Engler. And he has been, you know, he's a data guy, he's a number cruncher, he's a social media maven. I mean, he's just a maverick. He just knows everything about all this stuff. And he's the smartest guy in the room kind of guy. Okay. So, you know, he knew that there needed to be a companion to um, Walking Dead, which was getting very popular, you know, at that point. And because um, it wasn't always popular, but it was, he saw the trajectory of it and said, you, you know, sci-fi needs to make it. So he still had the ear of a lot of executives over there at sci-fi. And for whatever good or bad, they kind of said, okay, you know, what do you have in mind? He says, well, I wrote a script that the Asylum produced called Zombie Apocalypse. That's the kind of the basis that we want to do it for. Then Sharknado hit, and we were kind of just, in a lot of ways, just handed a 13-episode season for Sharknado, because it was so For good. Sharknado or Z Nation? I'm sorry, for Z Nation. Yeah. Um, because they came up to us and said, look, you know, we know that you've been pitching all these stories to us, but why don't we just do this zombie story that you guys produced, that Craig wrote, um, we'll commit to 13 episodes, um, you know, we'll see, we'll roll the dice and see how it goes, as long as you can, you know, do this, 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 and this, and which we did. And, you know, the good thing about having the insider information of what works with an audience is that which is the secret of how we get highly rated shows is you know you just ask what you're looking for um, is he knew how to really exploit and take advantage of the audience that was that sci-fi in, in a way that when we do a show um, will do well and you know good for us for listening to him and for hiring the right people and for getting the right scripts and getting the right tone and you know these people setting it all up and just having a marvelous team together uh, because the show was an instant hit um, and continued to be a top rater uh, both demographically our age is a much stronger age for them because you know we lower the demographics um, to what's your age well, like what's the audience for Z Nation off the top of my head I think it's in its 40s which oh. is which is higher than you think, but I think everything on television is now like sixty. I mean, it's right. like yeah. because because when you're in your twenties, you're watching it off Netflix and exactly. you're, you're streaming exactly. the whole thing. So it's like you know you, you hear those numbers, but I don't think that's a trade secret to anybody because I think all of them are you know in their forties on up. So you want to be the lower end of that than you want to be on the higher end of that for advertising. That's a really interesting change because. Um, when we were youngsters, and that was the TV audience. Is yes. young people were still a big share. Yes. And now you're right. Nobody. I don't have it. I'm not that young, but I don't have a television. Um, oh God. And okay. so this is not good. I think we're done with this interview. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, and so that's that's weird that the people in their 40s are on the young end of the of the watching spectrum. Yeah, because if you're if you're much younger than that, you're just not watching TV, which is really unfortunate. I mean, that's you know, look, the TV space we're kind of getting off track, but the TV space is not going to be the TV space in five years. I mean, it's just you know, you talk to the experts, and they're like, yeah, they'll be lucky if if the major broadcasters stick around. I mean, they're going to probably all end up on a on a subscription uh, streaming service. Um, it won't be real broadcast. The only thing that'll be free is PBS. Unless Trump gets rid of that, which is, I mean, not a joke. I mean, it's very possible. Um, or C-SPAN. Um, and everything else is going to be, you know, what you get on the rabbit ears, which will be nothing, and, um, and what you pay for. I'm curious. I want to get to lessons learned. Um, but I'm curious if you could speculate about where the asylum will be in five years. I mean, how is... It, like I've, I've identified these these three different phases, um, and so under the Rolf model, what where do you see phase four? How do you see yourself responding to this to these changes? 
Well, I think we, um, uh, we're in a transition stage. We have to get leaner, uh, lose half this office, I mean, space, maybe even people, just because you know, it's, it's, it's a different world out there. So has the, the Sharknado <clears throat> ship of plenty sailed? It was never a ship of plenty. Okay. Um, it was definitely certainly perceived as ship of plenty, which is really annoying when you go into contracts because it's like, oh, you're making millions of dollars. Like, no, I'm hoping this musical in Vegas will make, <laughs> you know, be will be where my college, uh, where the kids get college education. But it ain't this dog and pony show. Um, you know, it's especially when you have a number one show on sci-fi, you think, okay, you're really free. It's like, no, no, it's, it's a loss for us at this point. Um, so there wasn't... You don't have a, a, a Brentwood mansion uh, with Sharknado money? I drive a minivan if that helps you. Okay. Uh, a four-year-old minivan. Um, so, no. so, so it was great for the status of the asylum, but yes, that absolutely. didn't necessarily no, mean no that you were hauling bales of money out. No, uh, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, that, that could be also we're just bad business people. <laughs> it, you know, just, it, maybe a smarter person would invest it better. Um, it doesn't mean we're going under. I, I think the it just means we have to change our model. We can't do two films a month. Um, in fact, we've really slowed it down this year. I think at the end of the year it'll be like maybe one film a month. Just you know, even though we're shooting like now like five in a row, um, but there are months that we're not shooting at all because it's just not it can't sustain itself. These are we're not making you know enough money to cover the overhead. So we have to do we have to swing a little bit harder. And, and get at least a double or a triple as opposed to a bunt and a walk-on. You know, it's, mm. it's, uh, the little ones were fine, but we need to go bigger. And, in order and that's to, because how people are watching these yes. shows is changing. How people are watching, how people are paying for them. Mm. You know, um, we're, we're trying to work out a deal with Netflix and you go, you know, for another series. And we're, we're close and um, uh, hopefully we'll have something to announce in the next month or so, which would be fantastic. But at the end of the day, uh, the Netflix model is one where that's what you get period you know before you have all these avenues you can sell it to dvd you can sell it to other subscriptions you can sell it internationally you could sell it this so you know your million dollar show you can make three million dollars and everyone's happy and you go buy the mansion in beverly hills in this model it's like no you get the million dollars and again these are just made up numbers from uh from netflix but that's it you will never see a dime again wow because it's 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 the internet it's 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 just this is you know, they'll say, okay, we could maybe carve out some money here, but that's 30 years from now because we're going to take 30-year rights for, for this. And we're an international company. We're not just showing it domestically. So it's for 30 years or 20 years, whatever you negotiate, um, that's your, your money. So if you're not making it in the fees, now you have to make it in the fees, which means your shows cost a little bit less you know, than your million dollars, which no one wants. Um, and there's no money in it. So you have to kind of refigure how you do, do things. Early on, making one film a month because we were cash flow was the best way to uh, go about making movies because you, you know the profits of the first film we made in January will come in in like May, you know, and then that'll bankroll and you keep doing that and you'll spread the whole year around with cash flow. It maybe that's what we need to try and do, and I know we're trying to do it with TV series where, you know, you do one, you know, one a year, um, where so it, it it finances the next season of the next show the next year and. And it kind of makes everyone employed still, um, even though you won't ever see a dime, um, you know, after that. And is that starting to become more tenuous? It's, it's not easy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, even though you think it's the easiest thing in the world, it's uh, especially, I mean, it's, it's frustrating for me because I look at it and go, we have their number one show on sci-fi. We have the number one movie on sci-fi. But everyone's working hard the Shondas, the Ryan Murphys, the, you know, to try and get 10 picture deal over at Netflix and get their, you know, that 10 series over there, you know, or Hulu or Amazon. And there's very little for companies like ours. It, we're in a better position than most, um, but it's still not easy, you know. Well, it's interesting. You know, I guess if you count Sorority House Party, this is the 25th year of the asylum. Right. right. Uh, and so I, I want to respect your time. I don't want to talk all day, but... Um, I do want to talk about lessons learned because even though there is some uncertainty, you guys have been around for a quarter of a century, right? Right. And you've made it work. And I think that sometimes the lessons learned by a small company like the Asylum can be as interesting as like the big um, companies that also have to adapt. So, mm-hmm. after twenty-five years, what have you learned, and and what have been what what's the take home from all this? I. Uh... I don't know, but lessons learned because it's, it's we're still in, in the process of it. It's you know I want to think that we're that we're still adapting and we're still trying to grow. Um, it, it's it's I don't know if it's tougher to find the passion anymore because I am older. I'm in my fifties, so it's one of those you know I, I definitely have I, I I haven't directed in ten years, and people say, well, why don't you direct? It's like you need to have that passion to direct. You know, you need to, and you don't you, have it now. I don't feel like I have it now. I think if I got on set and I said I'm going to direct, I'd be all in, you know, and that'd be it, you know. But um, but standing outside of it, I feel like I am just not there. I need that, you know. I don't know what it takes, but I'm not there yet. When I'm there, I'll figure it out. I feel like that with, with the business. It's like I don't see the path yet, and I don't see, you know, I want to be passionate about investing my energy and time with this company to, to go forward in a way that's going to be around be around for another 25 years. But it's it's one of those things. This is a a very big unknown, and and the, I feel like the pieces now are bigger and more profound and more you know disastrous if we fail um, because everyone has families, everyone has kids. You know, people have worked here working for five, ten years. I mean, it's like you know, no one wants to let them go. No one wants you know. I don't want to have any problems with with uh, making house payments and, and and whatnot. So, but the decisions that we make are bigger. Um, so it's so there's there's not lessons learned yet except for if we fail then we screwed up and we're gonna have a lot of lessons to learn. If we succeed, we'll probably just feel like it's faded and we're fine. And I don't know that lessons are in there either. But I think we have to fail profoundly <laughs> in order for uh, those uh, you know lessons to learn. I because right now I'm still enjoying the experience of whatever the success is. You know I I appreciate so much the um uh where i am at life uh as opposed to some of my friends that struggle paycheck to paycheck family issues and and whatnot just because you know they work on a freelance world i don't work freelance i have a company that you know pays expenses um and and i realize that is rare and i'm going to keep that part of it at least try to um that we can continue to go forward that's interesting that there is for you, there is no lessons learned. It, it, it's interesting that uh, you've been in business for 25 years, but it's all about hanging on, reinventing, making it continue yeah, so to work. Yeah, I suppose that's a lesson learned. I yeah. mean, you know, all those are experiences. The experiences are the lesson learned, but, you know, I guess I'll have to write a book about it and just figure it out, you know, get 
grab uh, tequila one weekend and just trying to figure out what are the lessons learned of the asylum. I mean, not listen to people, you know, uh, do what you're going to do or listen to people and make the films they want to make, um, which is all good. Um, surround yourself with passionate people because um, uh, that's a big key to it too, to find people that really share your passion and enjoy making films and enjoy what they do. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're not curing cancer, we're making movies. And some would say even that's in quotes. Right. Um, so, you know, better have fun uh, and, and enjoy yourself because life is so short. <laughs> well, after all these years, did you have a favorite moment as the, as the asylum guy? Hmm. I, I, it, it's tough because Nothing comes to mind because I don't want to sound like a fortune cookie or a stupid Maya Angelou poem, but it just feels like every day is so interesting and neat and exciting. I could, I could probably pinpoint things like, oh yeah, well, you know, going to the People's Choice Awards and seeing, you know, you know our show nominated there and, and you know, or, or whatever, but these are like highlighted things. Um, having our 15th anniversary party at the pier and shutting that down and just having a real fun time. Um, it, but on the day-to-day, -day, it's fun. You know, uh, the stuff we do is fun. So, yeah, you know, having Barack Obama say, you know, mean tweets, uh, Sharknado was fun. Um, it doesn't necessarily define me, but it's, you know, uh, or like I live for that moment. Uh, so, yeah, it's a... I don't know if I can, yeah, I can pinpoint that. Well, a couple, couple more questions. One is, how can we find you? Like, how can we, if somebody's interested in, in the, the asylum's body of work or the musical in Vegas, how can they find uh, the asylum and, and David Latt? Right. So with me, it's, uh, I'm on Twitter, and I'm very active on Twitter, probably too active on Twitter, um, but I'm at David M. Latt. Uh, that's, I think, the same handle for Instagram, although the Instagram stuff is, I'm not. Like, I, I, I don't really have ownership of that yet. I can't figure that thing out. I don't know why it's, anyone wants to see pictures of me or doing anything like that. I, it's just too weird for me. Um, and, uh, and the Asylum has uh, a Twitter handle and a, and a webpage, uh, Facebook. Um, they're all different, of course. But uh, uh, the webpage is theasylum.cc. Uh, the That's the, the problem there is the CC. What does CC stand for? Chocolate chip. I don't know. Okay. Carbon. I used to say carbon copy, but uh, but only if you're over forty, I can say carbon copy because you know what that is. Under right. forty, they look at you like, what the hell is a carbon copy? It's like, okay, chocolate chip. CC like chocolate chip. And that right. seems to like be universal and all that stuff. And so so if, um, so you'll be tweeting about the musical on in Vegas when it happens. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And then one final thing, I almost forgot about it, but you're wearing rollerblades. Do you wear rollerblades every day in the office? Uh, being old, um, it's not every day anymore because the back went out about two weeks ago. Um, but um, I'm trying to get back into it. Yeah. And do you do it for fitness or is that your yeah, you affectation? Tell, I'm, I'm very, very fit. Uh, you know, this is a podcast, but I'm like uh, six feet, 140, um, all muscle. And... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I used to live at the beach for years, and uh, and being on roller skates was the way to go, and I loved it then. And and when we had our other office in Burbank, it was all concrete, okay. and so I'm like, I am on, you know, skates. And here with the new office in Glendale, uh, there's just too many 
mazes to go through, so it's not every day. I do enjoy it, and, and the floor isn't concrete, so it, it's a little bit different terrain. So um, back in Burbank, every day, every day, every day. This this is like once a week now. So it's just for comfort and enjoyment and yeah, I get I, people just push push me around. Nice. I don't have to work at all. Just like Courtney, get over here, push me. I need to go this way. Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. It was great to see you. I'll see you in 10 years, right? Yeah, 10 more years. We'll see what chapter four of, of the All Asylum right, story good. was. Sounds good. This has been the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. For more about everything that was mentioned in the interview, please check out the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Music is by my nephew, Cedar Van Tassel. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.